Uh, so before I really get into what I'm talking about today, I think it's important that you know a little bit about me. Otherwise, I'm just a total stranger up here talking to you, right? Uh, so my name is Jordan McFarland. I was born in Iowa. We moved to Oklahoma when I was seven. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was about four, so still in Iowa. I remember that the Sunday I was saved, I remember begging my mom and dad, please, please don't make me go to church. And, you know, because I was feeling guilty. I think I had taken a Dr. Pepper from the fridge. I was told not to, you know, but I did it anyway. And I'd gotten in trouble, and I knew I was guilty. Right? And so I went to church that Sunday because my parents weren't going to leave a four-year-old home alone. Right? They're good parents. They weren't irresponsible. And I went, and I'm glad they made me go because that's where I realized I didn't, while I was guilty of my sin, I didn't need to pay the penalty for my sin. And so my mom walked me through it after church to just to make sure that I actually understood what I was accepting, what I was doing in accepting Christ as my Savior. Uh, so we moved to Oklahoma when I was seven, uh, where I went into public schooling. And about eighth grade, I realized that I could use the niceness that I had, the intelligence that God had given me to make people like me. And so I strayed. And my dad was a pastor. I should probably tell you that. So at home and at church, I was being this good kid. At school, I was doing whatever I wanted to. Uh, but according to Philippians 1.6, which is my favorite verse, he is faithful to complete what he began in us. So he didn't leave me in my own sinful lifestyle. He pulled me out of it, uh, and he did it in a, a unique way to me. I, my parents went to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, and that's where I went. Um, and I went to their campus preview well, as a senior, because I thought, there's a party next weekend, and I want to go to this party. And if I go to Calvary, maybe my parents will think I'm good enough, and they'll let me go to this party, which was ridiculous, right? Um, but I went, and I realized what true Christian fellowship looked like. And I realized that the way I was living was not right. And I wanted the joy that I remember I had had once, and I wanted the joy that I saw in these people's faces. So it was then that God used that to pull me back and say, Jordan, you need to change your life. And so I did. I ended up going to Calvary Bible College where I met my, my beautiful wife, Karina, who's not able to be here to this morning. Um, we went to school together all four years. We got married after we finished school. We lived in San Francisco for the first three years of our marriage. Uh, and we moved to Springfield, Illinois just about a, a year ago, a little bit over a year ago. Uh, and so I'm at Southern View Chapel now as a pastoral intern and I'm going to be going to Faith Bible Seminary in Lafayette, Indiana. I think I've covered most of my life. I'm 26 almost. So a lot's more happened in my life than just those things. But now you know me a little bit more, and so I'm not just another stranger, right? Okay, so now to what we are talking about. I want you to think for a second about something that gives you hope. So I want us to move past that generality, though, of, that we normally answer with, you know, like, I hope it's going to stop raining at some point today, or uh, I hope the Cardinals win the World Series this year, or the Cubs, if that's your cup of tea. Um, I want you to get more specific into what actually brings you hope. I want you to think about a time when you felt like things were pretty hopeless, and you received hope. Okay, so maybe this is something kind of silly, but when I was in high school, I ran track, uh, specifically distance and mid-distance. Uh, the worst possible race is the two-mile run because 
you're running eight laps around a track. You know, you get bored by like the second, third lap, and you're running these eight laps. And if you're competitive at all, which I am, you run it as fast as you possibly can. And I should tell you, when we moved to Oklahoma, we moved to the panhandle of Oklahoma. Has anyone ever been to the panhandle of Oklahoma? It's awful, right? <laughs> if it rained ever there, it would be beautiful. Like there are, There's some real natural beauty there, but it doesn't rain. So there's no trees, there's no grass, not really. Any green grass is where people water their lawn. Right? And tracks are normally built on the edge of town. Also, by, by mid-April, it's already in the 90s. So my dad still lives there, and he was telling me last week, it was about 107 on average during the week last week, right? So all of this to set up, I'm running eight laps around a track, right? As fast as I possibly can. There's no tree coverage. Tracks are out on the edge of town. It's on a plane. And the song, Oklahoma, you know, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane, that's not what it's like. It comes ripping down the plane, right? <laughs> and you're just getting blasted with dirt and sand the entire time. And so it's, it's about 100 degrees every track meet. Wind's blowing at 25 miles per hour on a light day. And they're out on the edge of town. You just feel like you're running in a convection oven, right? So all of this to say, you get to that seventh lap, and you are feeling hopeless, you're like, is this ever going to end? Your legs feel like somebody took some noodles and dunked them in gasoline and lit them on fire. You're just like, ah, I want to be done with this. And you're thinking, I still got two whole laps to go. But eventually you finish that seventh lap. You get to that eighth lap, and there's this little surge of hope. If I finish this lap, I can go drink a nice glass of cold water. And then you, you run a little bit more, 200 more meters, and you get to the 200-meter mark, and you can almost, you're like, if I turn this corner, I'll be able to see the finish line. Then you turn that corner, you get to the 100-meter mark, and you can see the finish line. And that exhilaration, that, that hope, that extra boost of speed just to make it to the end, that's enough to get you through that race repeatedly. That and maybe a little bit of youthful stupidity. But I ran that constantly in high school. And that hope that you feel in that eighth lap, at the end of that eighth lap, made it worth it every single time. Now, that's a bit of a silly example. But it brings us to our, my purpose in this message, that we would understand the hope that we, as followers of Christ, have in Him. And that we would be convicted to live according to that hope. To enter into every day of our lives, thinking through that kind of eighth lap hope there. So we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. If you could turn in your Bibles with me. While you're turning there, I want us to see that the grace of God gives hope to our lives in three distinct ways. They're bringing salvation and in giving instruction and in providing eternal perspective. So we're going to look at these three, distinction, three distinctions and how His grace gives hope to our lives. But I'll let you keep turning there. It's Titus 2, 11 to 14. All 
All right, I hear most of the pages have rustled there, if you're still turning there. We'll be there all morning, so keep your thumb there. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let me pray and then we can go into it. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, that you have given us your words to us, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have given us what we need in life, Lord, that we might please you and we might do all things for your glory. Lord, I thank you for each one here, Lord. I pray that they would have hearts and minds that are open and attentive. I pray that you would be with me as I speak, that I would speak clearly. Lord, if there is any here who does not know you, I would, I would ask that they would see the hope that we have in you and that they would want that hope, Lord. And that they would not just sit on that hope, but they would look for it, Lord. Father, I thank you for your son. And I thank you for this morning. It's your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's first look at verse 11 where it says, The grace of God has appeared. Before we get into our three distinctions of the way that God's grace gives hope to our lives, I think it's important that we look at how exactly this grace has appeared. So, if you look just into the next chapter in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 7, I'm not going to read it all now, but I'm going to summarize it for you, and I'll point out some things. It says that His kindness and love appeared... That he saved us according to his mercy, by his washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and that he did it through Jesus Christ our Savior, and that we are justified and are heirs of eternal life. Now notice who is central there. It's through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now this is the grace of God that has appeared. All that Jesus did. Okay, so when I'm talking about the grace of God, I'm talking about everything that Jesus did. He is the divine and amazing gift that God gave. And I want you to think about how he gave it for a second. Did he give it to people who loved him, who were his friends? No. There were none. He gave this gift to a people who despised him, who were his enemies. What an amazing gift. He came to this earth for His kindness and love appeared. And He saved us according to His mercy by His washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Through Him. He is that amazing gift. This appearing is like the sun coming up over the horizon. Does anybody ever get up and look at the sunrise? I don't. I used to do it when I ran cross country. And we'd have to get up at like five in the morning, and so we'd finish running and we'd see the sunrise. I haven't watched it since. But it is beautiful, right? Just to see darkness and then that sun pops up over the horizon. That was our situation. We sat in darkness and in death, but He appeared. He, the sun, appeared, shining His light on our hearts. That is the grace of God that has appeared in our lives. So now that we 
we have a little bit of an idea of what it is talking about when it says His grace appeared. We can look at these three distinctions and how His grace gives hope to our lives. And the first is in bringing salvation. It says that in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Well, what does He mean by all men? Well, He means all men. This word does not literally mean a man or a male. So, ladies, you're in luck. God included you. Okay? This isn't just like a God brought salvation to men. He brought it to all mankind. It shows that the appearing of the grace of God has brought salvation to all mankind. If we look just a few verses prior in Titus chapter 2, we can note that Paul has just been writing about the relationships between various types of people. And then especially right before verse 11, the relationship between bond slaves being submissive and respectful and their masters being good masters. So salvation has brought, been brought to all kinds of people. All kinds of people have been opened up to salvation. We can gain further clarity by defining this term bringing. Okay, what does it mean that he brought salvation? What does it mean by bringing salvation? This means that the grace of God has revealed salvation to all. Because we look out and not everyone is saved. But it's revealed to all. So then whether you are an older woman, a younger woman, an older man, a younger man, whether you're a bond slave, whether you're a master, whether you're a pro golfer, whether you're a farmer, the grace of God has revealed the way of salvation to you. It is open to you. So no matter your socioeconomic status, your background, your gender, the grace of God has revealed salvation. So now, how has this grace of God appeared, bringing salvation on men? We touched on this earlier. But the way of salvation is Jesus. If you get nothing else from my message this morning, understand that there is no other way to be saved but Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. He came to this earth, He lived a perfect life as the God-man. He died on the cross, bearing our sins and their penalty. And He rose again, promising that we also will rise to be with Him. This is the grace of God. That's the gospel, the good news to us. The second part of the gospel is this. It has come to you and me. Romans 10, 13-15, we won't turn there now. But it tells us that God uses human agency to share that message with others. So the fact that you, if you do know the gospel, have heard the gospel and have believed it, is because somebody shared it with you. Right? And what a joy it is to welcome somebody into the family of God. Because that's really all we're doing when we're sharing the gospel with them and they accept. We're welcoming them in and saying, welcome, brother and sister, to God's family. So I want you to notice that first distinction, this is where it all starts. Because this is the receiving of the hope that we have in Him. So the grace of God brings hope to our lives in three distinct ways. And that first is bringing salvation. That's the receiving of the hope. Before you are saved, you are outside of Jesus Christ without hope in this life. Without a purpose. Without an eternal destination of hope. This is where... All is rooted, this is where it all began, with Him. So now let's look at that second distinction and how His grace brings hope to our lives. And that is in giving instruction. 
That's in verse 12. He says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Hendrickson, in his commentary, highlights that Jesus doesn't just come in and cause huge change in this, right? So notice, he's just got done talking about bond slaves being subject to their masters and everything. He doesn't come in and upset social systems. He's not throwing everything into confusion. He is not telling slaves to immediately rebel. You know, he's not saying, hey, pick up pitchforks and, and plows and kill your masters. He's not saying that. He also doesn't tell the owners to immediately free their slaves. But instead, he gradually trains in such a way that individuals are able to see what the right thing to do is and how to do the good. He gently teaches us what the right thing is. But he does immediately teach us how to obey. Because before we were disobedient, children of wrath. Now we're his children. And he expects us to obey. Now the word here used for this giving of instruction is related to the terms for intellect, but also the term for children. If that makes you feel, feel belittled, it's not supposed to. <laughs> we are his children. And he teaches us like children. So when we lived in San Francisco, I was a behavioral therapist. Um, I taught children with autism, uh, both in the classroom setting and out of the classroom setting. So I would go into the homes and I would teach children with autism a wide range of things from, from anything like how to brush your teeth, you know, basic motor skills, how to ask somebody to play with you, social skills, how to tolerate no which that was definitely a hard one to teach people because I don't even like to hear no, right? Now try teaching an autistic kid how to tolerate no. That normally resulted in also teaching them not to headbutt, not to bite, not to throw things, not to kick, not to scream, not to jump on the floor, not to run through a wall. You see, they often rebelled and they hated my teaching, right? And there were days that, I, let me tell you, I felt like giving up on teaching them. Especially on one particular day. So this one day, I went to see three clients that day, and there were normally two, three-hour sessions. Uh, and one of them was in a classroom, so I was in the classroom most of the day. Uh, I was headbutted several times. So not just one time. You know, one time is enough. I got headbutted like three or four times. I have a hard head, so that one was more okay, but by the end it was kind of like, I am sick of getting headbutted. Right? And so one kid said, ow, after he headbutted me. And I was like, yeah, well, that's what happens when you headbutt somebody. On that same day, so I go to the next, the next place. I had a school desk thrown at me. And I went to the next place. I was bitten hard enough on my tricep to leave like a black mark all over my tricep. Right? And so I had a rough day. I went home. And I was like, do I go tomorrow? I really don't want to be there again, right? I continued to teach them, and I wish I could tell you that it was because I'm just an awesome teacher, right? I'm not. I went partially because I loved the kids, sure, and I cared for them, but also if I hadn't been paid, I wouldn't have gone. I needed to make money, so I went, right? But I want us to think about this. You and I often fail. We rebel against what God has said 
and what he has told us. We don't like to tolerate no from him. We kick, we scream, we try to headbutt and bite, and we generally lash out against what God has told us. Now, you might not literally be headbutting, you might not literally be biting, and yet he continues to instruct us. Why? He's not getting paid, right? He's not getting anything from this. He does it because he loves us. So does anyone else ever feel like there are moments in life where God is just really trying to teach you a lot? You sometimes feel overwhelmed by how much he's telling you to learn? I want you to take hope in that. You see, he's instructing you. Which means what? It means that he hasn't given up on you. And he will not give up on you. He's teaching you because he loves you. He's not apathetic towards you. It also tells us in Scripture that he's not going to give you more than you are able to bear. So take hope. If you're feeling like you've got a lot that you're learning right now, he knows that you can handle it. And he also loves you. So what is it exactly that he is teaching us? Well, if you look into the verses, Paul gives us first the negative, then the positive, which is a pretty typical Paul style. The negative here is to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This denying is something that has happened in the past and has continual implications. So the moment we receive the grace of God in faith, we also begin to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This isn't a one and done, though. Okay, that has to continually be happening. It should continue through our lives. So now, to figure out what it is that we're denying, what is ungodliness? We hear it a lot in church. We hear it a lot around, what is ungodliness? Well, it's irreverence, irreverence, and the denying of honor where honor is due. So like somebody who comes over to your house and totally ignores table manners, you know, and you're just like, man, I'm not going to invite you over again. You just, you have spaghetti sauce all over your face. You threw it on my floor, right? It's dishonoring where honor is due. Like someone who boos rather than stands when a judge enters the room. Like somebody who burns an American flag or some other form of disrespect rather than saluting it and remembering the sacrifices that are made for our freedoms. Except this is all on an even grander scale because we're talking about disrespect and not giving honor where honor is due to the God Most High. When I put it like that, it seems like, well, yeah, of course I want to deny ungodliness, right? This is what we are taught to deny and what he is teaching us to deny. So then what about worldly desires? What are worldly desires? This word desire means lusts or passions. When we think of lusts or passions, we generally think of the negative side, right? You hear the word lust and you think, yep, that's bad. But actually, it can mean any kind of desire. That's something you want. You see, lusts, desires, passions, they're measured for their morality by their motivation. 
Some desires or lusts are good because we measure it by what God has declared. See, I desire to have a relationship with my wife. That's a good thing. I desire to come and preach God's word to you. That's a good thing. It's all measured by what God has said. But a lot of our desires, a lot of our lusts are bad. We see that those line up with what the world says. They're worldly motivated. And that's typically what we think of when we think of the word lust or desire. This is anything that is self-seeking or worldly seeking. The motivation for these is lined up with all that is worldly and present as opposed to heavenly and future. But you see, we are told and we are taught to deny worldly desires. Not all desires. Right? We're not supposed to be mindless, joyless robots serving him. It's okay to have a desire for these good things. But we're to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, think for me, with me for a minute. How do we deny these things? Have you guys ever asked yourself that question when you're just struggling and you, you want something that you know is sinful? You want to do something? How do we do it? Well, that's explained in the next thing that we've been instructed in. So first, he gave us the negative. We deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and we live. And that's what he teaches us. He teaches us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Right? Just knowing that you're de- supposed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires is not enough. You've got to put off and put on this. So what does that word sensibly mean? It means soberly, prudently. This is the personal... Sorry, I forgot there was a microphone on my chest. This is the personal focus of living in a way that is consistent with your new identity in Christ. So sensibly there, that word sensibly, righteously, and godly. Sensibly is that personal focus. This is living in such a way that you're able to have your, sen- your senses about you, your wits about you. This is living in such a way that you're not involved in trivial disputes. This is sensibly, personal focus, to live sensibly. The next one is righteously. This is a word with which we're more familiar, right? We hear that one all the time. But righteous here then relates to how we interact with one another and with others. Living righteously is the outward manifestation of your living sensibly. So sensibly is I'm focused on how can I be thinking through what I'm doing. Righteously is how can I be thinking through what I'm doing and then apply that to my relationships with others. And then that last one is godly. Piously, religiously, devoutly. This means that the way in which you live towards God is now honorable. This is the goal of living sensibly and righteously. That you might honor Him in obedience to Him as we live among one another. You see, now we are sons and daughters of God, no longer enemies. We now live to obey Him. And this brings us to the last part of the verse there in, in verse 12. It says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Has anyone ever watched the show Monk? TV show Monk? Yeah? The theme song, it's a jungle out there, right? Well, sometimes it's Christians, and for those of you who haven't, Adrian Monk is this super 
obsessive compulsive guy, total germaphobe, afraid of everything, right? See, sometimes we walk around like that, acting like we're going to be infected by being in contact with sinners. In other ways, we act like teenagers. Nothing could ever infect me. I can go and party and it'll be okay. I'll be all right. I won't sin in doing that. You see, this is why we need to be taught by Him. When I was teaching autistic children, I had a a nine-year-old kiddo who seemed to be afraid of the vacuum. You know, someone would be vacuuming and he'd freak out. It's pretty common among autistic children. And yet, at the same time, he would run out on a busy street corner, like there's always cars going by, in his underwear, by himself to press the little walk button, you know, the thing that says, wait, to walk across, blah, 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 road, right? He would run out there in his underwear, all by himself, not afraid of the cars going 40 miles per hour past him, not afraid of the random strangers there, but he would be afraid of the vacuum. You see, he needed to be taught as quickly as possible how to assess those dangers. You and I are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly now. We do it now. You and I are being taught now. Obey now. We have a responsibility to act on this immediately. Don't wait. And the grace of God will help us in real time. See, this is the living out of the hope that the grace of God has brought to our lives. He has given us and is giving us this grace and hope. Let's live like we have this hope. That brings us to the third distinction in how God's grace gives hope to our lives. And it's through providing eternal perspective. If you look with me at verses 13 and 14. It says, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We are to be looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. How are we able to look for this blessed hope? Because we know Jesus. If you don't know Him, you're not looking for His coming with hope. But you can by knowing Him. We are able to look for this hope because we have believed in Him and we have and are denying ungodliness and worldly desires. And we are living sensibly, righteously, and godly now. We should look forward to this like a child looks forward to Christmas. Right? We've all been there. We've all witnessed the excitement. There's a reason thousands of songs have been sung, stories are written because about this excitement, right? That giddiness that children have on Christmas Eve. There's a reason that people prepare for Christmas now before Halloween and earlier and earlier each year. It's because they're excited, right? They're looking forward to Christmas. But why do people get so excited? Because they're looking forward to what is coming. The presentation of their presence, mostly, right? But what is our hope as Christians? 
It's his return, his coming. He is our hope. How much more exciting is that even than Christmas morning? I mean, modern Christmas morning. Obviously, the first Christmas morning was just as exciting, right? But he's coming back and he will bring us with him. His return is imminent. No one knows the hour. He is coming to take us with him. And he gave himself for us. It says to redeem us from every lawless deed. You and I no longer have to sin. We do sin and we will sin. But you no longer have to. And when you do, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And he came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Think about that one. We are his possession. We belong to the one who loves us perfectly. What a blessing. Instead of belonging to ourselves, the way of the world, the, the lusts in, of our mind, we can belong to him. And we are called to be zealous for good deeds. So the hope that the grace of God has brought to our lives ought to affect the way we live. If we know that our Lord is coming at any point, what kind of people ought we to be? Go back to my race, that eighth lap. We don't know when he's coming back. We are running that eighth lap. Live like it. Do it now. When I was a child, my parents would give us a list of chores to do around the house uh, whenever they'd need to be out for the day. You know, they'd go and they would have errands they were doing. Um, and they would give us this list of chores. Uh, so my little sister and I were, were pretty foolish. So we would play all day until about 15 minutes before we knew my parents were coming home. Uh, then we would scurry around and we'd try to accomplish everything, which was like 20 things on the list that they had given us to do. Uh, it didn't, normally didn't work, by the way. So kids, don't try it. It doesn't work. Okay, you get in trouble, right? But we would, we would scurry around. We would all of a sudden rush around like, oh, crud, mom and dad are going to be here in, in 15 minutes. We've got, we've got to get going. Amy, quick, you take those. I'll do these. And then we'll meet in the middle and see if we can get it all done. You see, you and I have been given tasks to do here on this earth. Are we playing around, waiting until 15 minutes before? Or are we living with the expectation that he could come at any moment? I say this not to put fear in you, but to encourage you that he is the longing of our hope. He is glorious. And we now live to see his glory. We now live to glorify him. And we will be glorified with him. So you don't need to be discouraged by anything. You can seek hope in him. So my, my purpose in this message has been that we would all understand the hope that we as Christians have and be convicted to live according to this hope. So the grace of God brings hope to our lives in three distinct ways. Bringing salvation, giving instruction, giving instruction and providing eternal perspective. So by way of application, we should receive His grace and hope. If you have never accepted this gift, do so now. Have the hope that we have in Christ. You don't need to wait until you're absolutely 100% certain. You can have this hope. And if you have received this, 
remember it today and rejoice in the hope that we have and in the hope that you have received from him. The second application there is live out that hope. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Think about it for a minute. What does that actually look like in your life? Get specific with yourself. By the way, get specific with yourself, not somebody else today, okay? You know, don't go like, hey, honey, I really was thinking about you this morning while we were hearing the message, and these are some ungodly things that you do that I would like you to work on, right? What can you do in your life to deny ungodliness and worldly desires? Get specific. There's a saying, I'm a biblical counselor, there's a saying in biblical counseling, people don't change in fuzzy land. If you just say, oh, I'm generally going to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, you're not going to change. Get specific. If I'm eating too many Oreos, I'm going to specifically say I can have one Oreo a day. I'm not going to say I'm just generally going to not eat too many Oreos because what's too many? Well, a whole box can be too many or three boxes can be too many, but if I haven't set up parameters, I'm not going to change. And we're also taught to live sensibly, that's in yourself, righteously toward others, and godly for God. And to do it now. Don't wait. And then lastly, look forward. Because He is coming. Be excited. He's purchased us. Live like it. Let me pray, and then I think we can be dismissed. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you that you are faithful to us, Lord, even when we are unfaithful. Lord, thank you that you are instructing us, that you have brought us salvation, that your grace is sufficient in our lives. Lord, help us to long for you to come back. Help that to be our sole and major focus in life. Lord, I praise you for what you have done and what you are doing. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, I believe you all are dismissed.